Are you in need of a pace clock? Looking to finally upgrade those ancient analog clocks? The Swim Nerd Pace Clock is the most innovative digital pace clock. It connects to your Swim Nerd mobile app, allowing you to program any set your heart desires. Except for 100 100s while listening to Nickelback. You can't program that. That that is not allowed. If you haven't seen the Swim Nerd Pace Clock yet, go to swimpractice.com to check it out. <laughs> Mel Stewart, welcome to the podcast, mate. How are you? I, I've, I've been trying to get on this podcast. I've been thinking about ways to bribe you into to getting me on. Uh, I'm, I'm a fan. I've been, I've, I'm a fan of the podcast. Oh, you don't have to bribe me at all, my friend. You're a, you're a living legend. So um, I, I'm proud to have you on. So thanks the, for coming. The, so the moment that I, I, got the, I got the message from you, I was, I was literally thinking, God, I like I like to I'd like to be on on Inside with Brad Hawk. I just would be, and and it's like, what do I need to do? So we, I'm like, and so I like I'm like talking to Coleman Hodges. I'm like, we need to invite Brett on, and uh, and and he's like, really? What do you think? And I'm like, well, I mean, he's an elite. He's an elite coach. He's got uh, he's got this huge background. He's a perfect he's a perfect subject, and maybe just maybe he'll he'll invite me on his. <laughs> well, I wore this shirt especially for you today. I feel like it, it's a good representation of where we're at. Um, not really. I mean, you're a, you're a giant in the in the sport of swimming. You've done so much, uh, n- not only as an athlete, but now what you do with swim, swam, and and beyond. It's just incredible. And and I kind of want to get into all of that. But uh, I took the approach today, Mel, that I know a lot about you, but I don't. I, I've never really heard it from you specifically. So I've tried not to dig in too much into what the internet could tell me about you. I really want to just get your opinion because um, you're an incredibly successful man and that starts somewhere. It starts, you know, obviously with the way you're raised and, and how you grow up and the influences that you have in your life. So if we, if you don't mind, just take me back to kind of where swimming started for you, because I want to get a full picture of this. Uh, I, I, Grew up in Gastonia, North Carolina. My mother wanted me to be water safe. She took me to Charlotte Whiteside, who taught me how to swim. I joined the swim team. Uh, I don't. I don't know that I was five years old, but I was already in on the team. My older sister was 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 going, and I think that my parents needed to have take both kids somewhere. So, but we'd go to swim practice. And uh, the joke was when I was a little kid that I'd, I would cling to the lane, the the ladder while my sister would swim and I would turn blue because the water was cold while my dad played basketball in the gym. <laughs> and, uh, by the time I was eight, I, 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 this might not be, a, I, I think this is correct. But by the time I was eight, I was third at 10 and unders in the 50 yard fly at the North Carolina state meet by 10. I was, I had the most, uh, top 16 records, which was uh, with our good buddy Brent Rudemiller and Swimming World Magazine, and they they ran a big feature on me, and I was like, I had the most top, top 16 rankings for my age group, and it was like I had arrived, the greatest thing in the world. I was a superhero. I, I had so much. I walked around with my chest chest puffed out, and I would say that uh, swimming at that point was just like the Olympic dream was there, and I was fully in. That's 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 the start well interesting because a lot of there are a lot of stories like that a lot of great 10 year olds or a lot of great 11 year olds mm-hmm. but they never go on to have the success and we we often see the dropout rate is 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 huge especially with those young kids because a lot of them are being pushed were you were you being pushed by your parents to to be that good or was that an internal thing so god you're so good 
Um, so my father was, so I never, my parents did a couple of things. Uh, one, they, I knew they loved me no matter what. I knew my parents, uh, my parents, I, I grew up in a very dysfunctional household, very weird background, very weird history, but I, I got, I got like, it's for as dysfunctional, as weird as your background can be. If your parents, if the, the kid, if they, if they instill in their kids that they love you and that that is unquestionable, they would that you would have to slice through them with the samurai sword to get to me. They loved me. Hmm. So it didn't matter what I did in the pool. At the end of the day, I had their love. So that was this power and this thing that, that fortified me and buoyed me as a kid. So that, and that's, I got to be honest with you. I don't know if that message gets through with kids. I feel like kids are when they're young and we see them flame out. It's because they feel like they're performing for their parents' approval. Mm -hmm. And I never got that. Uh, it was always, and, and also their, the way they talked to me and they, and they, I was raised, it was, if I did something, it's wow, you must be proud. It wasn't that they were proud. It was my ownership and what I was accomplishing. So I thought that was brilliant. Looking back on it and being a parent. The second thing was they valued, um, I played tennis, I played basketball, I played soccer. Uh, I really wanted to play basketball. Uh, my vertical leap, like six inches. I was a hustler. I could, you know, I, coaches loved me because I could work my ass off because I was a swimmer. I was, I was conditioned. But uh, so I, I, the, so I, I did other sports and then to, to get to really crystallize it, I'll say this until I was 10, I was training three days a week. And my father did not allow my coach, my age group coach at the time to increase my training unless I started to plateau. If I plateaued, increased it to four days and then they increased it to five days. So I wasn't, it wasn't until high school and I was in a big program that trained hard. I wasn't until high school that I was doing the full doubles, 11 sessions a week. Yeah. Interesting. A lot of, a lot of stuff in there, but you know, at 10 and you're winning there's, it's not this trajectory to Olympic gold. That's not the way it goes for anybody. So at some point, either you were, you matured fairly young or you were super talented, but at some point you, you, you came up against some people that were, were catching you or were finally as good as you, or at some point you were challenged, right? So you don't go from 10 to Olympic gold and, and, and you're unchallenged. Where did you start to feel the challenge? Where did it start to, where were you starting to be pressed as a kid? I really want to answer you that I was never challenged. <laughs> <laughs> I want to answer you there because I, I think we have selective memory. Yeah. Um, so, and and I'll just, you know, it's, I, I think that ego is a very interesting thing and I, and, I, and I'm always, I think that if you're successful, you know, if I'm successful in, in all endeavors, it's because I'm setting my ego aside and I'm trying to get it to a place of just, it's just the creativity. It's just what I'm doing. It's the, it's focusing on the microcosm, but I'm going to be straight up with you, buddy on, on, on we're getting inside. I'm going to say that my first reaction no, never challenged. I was always trying to beat kids who were older than, than I was, but that's not true. That's not true. Two things. Um, I couldn't swim breaststroke to me. Breaststroke belonged with synchronized swimming. Uh, <laughs> I have always held, uh, you know, my roommates have always been breaststrokers. I uh, respect breaststrokers. Butterfly is, it, it came out of breaststroke, but, uh, I couldn't swim. I was so slow in breaststroke that I lost 
in summer leagues for meets in breaststroke. And, and I couldn't sprint. I was, uh, my sprinting my sprinting days ended when I was 10. There was never another 50 win ever. Mm. Uh, and, and so, uh, my, I, I became selective. I, I went to nationals in the mile from mile 400 AM and did 200 fly because 200 fly was something you could do if you were conditioned to do the mile and it was shorter and it was, e and it was easier. Well, somebody that's used to winning and somebody that's used to success at some point, you're, you're, you're judging yourself against yourself. So you're going to meets and, and you're not getting best times at some point. Um, or, or you just go to a meet and, and it just doesn't happen that, that meet. So how do you, how does Mel Stewart react to that? I, I, I you know, it's, uh, I, I plateaued when I was like, I had such a great nine, you know, eight, nine, 10 year old run up. I plateaued 11 to 12. It wasn't until I was, you know, almost 13 that it didn't really turn on again. And I started seeing drops and, uh, the, um, and then I went through a period of time where things were dysfunctional in the household and it was, I was improving, but there, it was erratic. And, uh, and I had moments where it was, um, where it was, uh, we're losing hurt. And, uh, and I had to, I, I lived inside my head and my, and inside my head was, I'm going to get you next time. But the, it became chaotic. Let's just, let's just say that between 12 and, and 16, my life was pretty chaotic. What do you mean? Was, uh, was there a divorce in the family? So, um, no, well, there probably should have been. Okay. Um, and it's a, but my parents loved each other. They never divorced. Uh, the, um, so when I was, uh, so at the age of eight, my parents moved from Gastonia to Charlotte, North Carolina and Charlotte. And for everybody who's listening, they know that Charlotte's been a powerhouse for a long time and swam because of Jeff Gackle and our, um, our friend, David Marsh. Uh, so they have a long history, but, um, my parents moved there so that my father could work for a, a guy named Jim Baker, Jim Baker and Tammy Faye. And that was, uh, they were the, they were the, the heads of a, the PTL television network. So in the early eighties, there was, 24 hour networks, there was CNN, there was ESPN, there was MTV, and there was Jim Baker's 24 hour Christian network. And that organ, so my dad was, uh, my parents weren't college educated. My dad was a guy Friday, you know, I was a manservant for him. Mm -hmm. My mom was a nanny to the kids. And uh, so they got into this because they were evangelical Christians and they believed that they were the, Jim, Jim and Tammy Faye Baker were the be all end all. And my mother quickly found out that this was a scam and it was about money. Mm. And my, my father loved it because my father was immersed in family and uh, he, he loved the culture. He loved, he loved it. So it made it very, very uh, chaotic in the household. There was a, there was a, there was a lot of threats. The mm. threats were serious. Threats were like um, my mother threatening to go to the local paper and, and, and tell on them. And, and ultimately that paper, the Charlotte observer did ultimately report. It wasn't because my mother, uh, was a whistleblower, but that, that, that paper did report on this organization and they got a Pulitzer prize for it. And ultimately the Jim Baker went into prison, was sentenced to 45 years. Oh, wow. Jeez. I didn't know any of that story. It's incredible. Yeah, this, so this, this, is the, this is the weird stuff that happens in the United States. I don't know if it happens down under. No, not not like here. This is a it's a strange country at times. 
It's getting well, weird, buddy. It's getting weirder. But it, it started. I'll put it. I'll put it. I'll put a. I'll put a. I'll put a dot on this. I'll put a period on this sentence. I'm in the in the in 1978. We were in, so the the grounds of the PTL was in North Carolina, but they wanted to to they wanted to have a city. They wanted their own compound, like a like a man named Oral Roberts in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So. When I was 10, 1978, we went to the tarmac of a, of a private airfield. Everyone stood and, and held hands and prayed. And uh, Jim Baker prayed. He led the prayer with all the board members of PTL and my father and me and some kids who were on, on this trip. And he prayed that he would have the same inspiration as Oral Roberts, who saw a 50-foot Jesus in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and that's why he built his compound there. So... He prayed to have that same inspiration. Then we got on Oral Roberts' jet, which was on loan, which was like a, was which, which was a converted 747. It might not have been that big, but it was huge, and it looked like Vegas inside. And then we flew to Beverly Hills, and I stayed at the Hilton, mm-hmm. saw Farrah Fawcett, <laughs> and then we, so we went to Beverly Hills. We went to New Mexico. We went to um, a few places all around the country in this jet. Nashville and then came back home and ultimately Jim bought uh, a property which became the city heritage USA where we moved as a child we lived in this Christian city which Mm. was based on a television network and uh, it was back in North Carolina South Carolina because the the tax break was better wow sounds like uh, David Koresh and the Branch Davidians um, not as extreme nobody dies but it's uh, it's the same thing. It's all the same thing. I just got to prison for forty five years. It's all the same stuff. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Crazy. So how how ultimately in reflection, how did this shape you in the, in this period? Like how, the man you are today, or maybe even the competitor you were, or in terms of swimming, what did it do for you? So what it did was it, uh, I was escaping to the pool, mm. and I was trying to escape my family situation. It was sort of like being the preacher's kid. Um, it, it was, uh, they were such a big presence in the marketplace where we lived. Um, you know, it was a very unusual thing. It was, it's yet to, I need to say this, it was the largest televangelist organization on earth. They're the T, you know, they were on in 185 countries. Um, when, in terms of data for people and tourism in the United States, the number one place that Americans would go to was Disney World, then Disneyland, then Heritage USA, which was the Christian city where we were. Mm-hmm. So it was a theme park plus a TV channel. And uh, so I was just trying to escape that. So I was doing, I was, uh, you know, I abused alcohol. I, I, I was dabbling in a lot of stuff, very destructive. And I was swimming to get numb. And so it was, it was erratic. It was a lot of anger. And, and it wasn't until I was... Uh, 15 and my father started looking for an option for me to get out and that's and and they got me out to a boarding school in pennsylvania mercersburg Mm. academy and that's when things normalize yeah i was going to say there must have been some turning point for you to pull pull back in so so that was it you went to boarding school and and okay cool so so how long were you at the boarding school for a couple of years so um, we i got there and i they um i had to i had to repeat a grade because i didn't uh because I, I, I couldn't test into the grade that I was supposed to go into. I was supposed to be a junior in high school at that time, and they pulled me back. So I was entering 10th grade. 
And uh, it is because I had actually gone to school because at a certain point, PTL had a school and I went to a PTL school and I didn't learn anything. Basically, we had a Bible devotional every day, all day long, and I didn't, I wasn't taught anything else. So I didn't, I missed the school, a year of school. So go to Mercersburg and academically very challenging environment. And um, so they hold me back a year. John Trimbley's the coach who, you know, that's, that's an interesting topic. We can get into that. Oh, we're going there. We're going there. And then we can, uh, so anyway, I was there with JT and JT took me from being like 32nd in the world, 10th grade in the 200 fly, which was the focus to, uh, seventh in the world, the second in the world by the time I was uh, a senior. Oh, wow. Jeez. That's, uh, that's incredible. So, so JT's the coach there, but you end up at Tennessee where, where JT is the coach. So did you guys move together? So there was a, so senior year, I took trips to Texas, Cal, USC. I was going to take a trip to SMU at the time because I, I was a big Steve Lundquist fan. And uh, <clears throat> every day I'd walk on deck, JT's like, when are you signing with Tennessee? I took a recruiting trip to Tennessee. And he's like, when are you signing with Tennessee? And my, I wanted to go to Cal. Or, you know, I was, I was, I was thinking Cal, Cal Berkeley because I wanted to piss my parents off. That's like the worst place I could go coming from an evangelical background. I go to Cal. Mm. That's a real big, <clears throat> or, and, and, but I, I was, a, I was a huge Eddie fan. I, I loved Austin and, uh, and Eddie's Eddie was very successful, but it was, it was, it was a lot. And I, and I, and I, JT was, was, was very, uh, convincing. So basically the, the default was I know with John Trimbley, I'm, I'm, I'm in, I'm in position to win a gold medal at a certain point in my career. That's something I could bank on. Yeah. We had a, we had a relationship. It worked. And, um, you know, I was, I was a solid student by the time I graduated from high school, but I wasn't a, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to be a rocket scientist mm -hmm. and a, a state school was fine. I could be competitive at that state school academically. So I went, okay, I'll go to Tennessee. So, so JT had taken the job, what, your senior year or before that? Sorry, I didn't answer your question. JT took the job my senior year. We both went our freshman year, and he took like four or five other – four for the freshmen. Gotcha. You know, four of the seniors from Mercersburg. Where we, so we had a huge freshman, freshman contingent. And the freshman class that he recruited our freshman year, I think we got seventh just with freshmen. Wow, wow. We're, we're, it was oh, – it was Tennessee – um, good at that stage or was, was, was JT trying to rebuild it? We, we, we know Tennessee was a powerhouse in the seventies and, uh, coach buzzard was there. Coach buzzard was a football coach and he did a lot from the late sixties into the seventies. They won in 78, I think. And, uh, so by the time we were there, it was on the downturn. And I think the year before we got there, I think that they were, I want to say they were 30th, you know, I, I don't have it in front of me. But it's uh, it was, they were out of the top twenty, which is something that you know if you're a D one coach you want to be in top five, top ten, definitely the top twenty. They weren't there, not with, not with their history. Their history they needed to be in contingent, and they and they had a lot of investment from the AD and a lot of buy in. What year was this? What what year was your freshman year? My freshman year was eighty nine. 89. So, so you'd, you'd, uh, you'd gone to the Olympic trials, your, your senior year in high school and missed the team. No, no. So 88, I went to, I went to trials. Uh -huh. And the reason why this is a blank spot is because I've scrubbed it from the internet. 
<laughs> so I went to trials. I won trials. And that's okay. how I, and, and with that time winning trials, I was one tenth off Pablo Morales' American record. One trials and two hundred fly. And, uh, and that, that's what ranked me second in the world behind gross. Mm. So I go into, so the summer of 88, um, I, I go into the Olympic games ranked second in the world, get into the waiting room at, at, at the Olympic games in Seoul. And there's six other athletes there. I think someone started crying in the corner. I was looking for gross group. He showed up at, at like the last minute, which I didn't know you could do. I think he broke the rules. <laughs> He walked in. He didn't look at any of us. His yeah. eyes crossed my gaze. He didn't look. He just looked through me. Mm. And I was, uh, I was 19, second youngest guy on the team, and I freaked out. Mm. Fear overcame me. Uh, I, I couldn't feel my legs as I was walking out. Wow. I flipped out, totally out of the race, and I got fifth place. Just, just totally off your game plan. The whole, the whole swim. Yeah, the the most. It took me years to. Re, it took me years before my confidence really came back. Wow. Yeah, it it was. Uh, so, I never had that moment as a kid, but I had that moment then. Yeah. And I, so the time I went was a one fifty nine. I don't know what it was. It was like slower than a time I'd gone when I was sixteen. Wow. Gosh. So it was like I I'd, I'd gone faster. A few years before, it was it was a, uh, it was a, it was a very big bed shitting. But it was helpful that you're going into freshman year in college. So then now you've got four years of college swimming at least to to get past that and get over that, right? It's yeah, and, and it's a so going from Mercersburg and JT where we swam, we do two two and a half hour sessions. Uh, we did two and two hour and 15 minute sessions, Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, Wednesday, we would go three, three and a half Saturday. We'd go three, three and a half, but we wouldn't do doubles. So we get to Tennessee and start lifting heavy and I'm doing 11 sessions and I'm training in the distance line. So I was, uh, my freshman year, I swam hundred back, hundred fly, 200 fly and, uh, and all the relays. And, um, but I was, I was fit enough to swim a 500 and final on a 500. Wow. Incredible. So let's get on to JT. Talk, talk to me about this man. This, this man, um, actually tried to get me banned from college swimming. I actually, I actually came to America in 97. I went to the SEC championships and, and I've told this story before, but they actually, David, David came up to me and said, Hey, listen, um, somebody's reported you for, for taking money and they're doing an investigation. Well, long story short, that somebody turned out to be JT. I'd, I'd actually swam in a meet before I got to America against a kid named Ricky Busquets. Ricky, Ricky swam at Tennessee and uh, ultimately turned me in. Uh, JT turned me in and um, I hated that man. I hated that man with a passion. I, I've never hated anybody like I hated that man. Uh, I just couldn't believe that somebody would try and ruin a kid's career you know, and, and take pleasure in that. Um, so, uh, so that was yeah. my impression of him anyway. <clears throat> uh, JT, how, how do we, how do we, uh, how do we unravel this ball of wax? Uh, so well, let's just, well, let's just say we'll do, we'll do the, the, I called JT a few weeks ago and, uh, well, let's, I don't know how to, how do we roll this out in a narrative so that people get it? Cause you know, these beats. What's the good and the bad? There's, a, there's good and bad let's, in everybody. Let's, I think you need to begin with the with super bad so that people have context on what this is. Okay. So uh, I'm an adult. We've launched Swim Swam. 
And we haven't been around very long. And our editor-in-chief is Braden Keith. And he's a co-founder. He's an owner. And we have a firewall between my job, which is I manage production. I manage our advertising partnerships. He handles editorial. And we did that on purpose because we didn't want there to be, it's a legal firewall. Like he can, he can, he can sue me if I break this firewall. Hmm. And it's a, I didn't want to be swimming world. I didn't want to be an organization where the old people in the room took over the voice and it would hurt us. I want us to always be young and evolving and with the times. So co-founder, owner, editor-in-chief, Braden Keith comes to me and he says, your coach is, is, in, a, and is in a bad place and you're boxing you out. You're not going to be in any communications or we're going to be reporting on this. And I'm like, what's happened? And he goes, it looks like, it looks like drug abuse. It looks like there could be some weird sexual stuff in there. It's all going to come public. And, uh, and the truth is I was not a part of that reporting. An interesting side note is that locally, the way the papers played locally was that I broke the story and I reported my coach Mm. and that's not true. It's just simply a fallacy. Uh, I was aware that, that Trimbley had some addiction issues. And I was aware that he had taken, you know, some, I was aware that he had gone through some, uh, through treatment programs, but I was aware that he, you know, this had, this has been an ongoing thing for him. It was just a part of his life. That's just that's who he was. He's an extreme personality. Mm. So long story short, uh, we reported, it was reported locally it went everywhere and Trembley was removed and the, he was removed because, uh, he was, I don't know what the exact thing is, but it was, uh, he was, he was using his, his university email to solicit drugs and solicit sex. Yeah. And it was like, so he went into a really dark hole of addiction yeah. and it was, and it was bad. Mm. So, uh, they did an investigation. I was actually called about the investigation and they asked me if he had asked me for money and, uh, and he had not. And I said, my response to him was, this is my coach and we have a personal relationship. I'm not going to answer this question. This guy's like, other than my father, this is the guy, mm. good egg or bad egg. This is mm. what it is. Mm. So that, that's the bad, that's the bad side. Yeah. This yeah. is the dark, this is the darkest it gets. Yeah. So this one, this is what I can tell you. The, uh, I talked to him a couple weeks ago and I'm checking on him because yeah. he was my coach mm. and, uh, I, we, we achieved a lot together and I, and there's a part of me that loves JT and I called him to tell you, you know, I love you. Hey mm. bud, how you doing? Are you okay? Mm. I'm checking to see if he's, if he's okay. Yeah. And, and I think he is, I think he is, but he is somebody who would, um, I'm aware that he did some things that were extremely competitive. And in terms of your, the case in point is your example. It's like, uh, there's certain things you do in the culture of swimming. There's certain things you don't. Yeah. We're family. Yeah. And, uh, and I, and I, I, would, I think it's accurate to say that he, that he crossed the line in terms of like breaking the swimming family rules. So, yeah, yes, yeah, I'm aware. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I, I was at the SEC championships, like I said, and David said, you're, you're suspended for now. You have to wait back. So this was day one. The whole team goes to the pool and, and I'm sitting in the hotel room by myself, not knowing what's going on. And um, David was trying to get a stay of suspension. Like, just let him swim now. And we'll, we'll revisit it after the SEC championships. He's a smart man too, you know. So, yeah, long story short, again, it happens. David comes, 
beating down my door. He's like, you're, you're in, let's go. So the first night is the, is the, the hundred butterfly. Um, or it might've been the second night. And, and I end up on the podium in the hundred butterfly and, and we end up first, second and third Auburn university. And because it was kind of expected that one of, one of the Tennessee swimmers was going to get on the podium, they asked JT to present the, the awards. And, um, and I've never spoken, I've never spoken like this to a coach before. And I remember I, I got the bronze medal. So he awarded the gold, he awarded the silver and he looked at me square in the eye and he smiled and he said, Brett, fantastic swim. And I remember grabbing his hand and pulling him a little bit close. And I remember saying, fuck you, JT. <laughs> here's, here's the, here's the, uh, yeah. Yeah. Good for you. Ah, uh, you know, good for you. And that that's the competitive side here's of me. A, you, know? I, you know, I, here's the thing. I love my coach. Uh, there was a, there was a point in time where he and I were, got to a point where I left him, like just took all my stuff and piled it on his desk, packed up my room and left town. So he, he, you know, he, he, he was, um, this was a consistent part of his personality. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, but it's uh, and, you know, good for you, good for you for for standing up for yourself and for being strong. Uh, you're not you're not the first person who's probably had to do that. <laughs> so you you swam four years at Tennessee under him. You have a, a, an incredible amount of success, or what? What happened? I turned pro my after my junior year. Oh, okay. Which was part of the reason. So I turned pro after my junior year, and. Uh, I was a, I was, I, you know, if you think about my background, I grew up in a, in a, in a, in a, in a I was socialized growing up in a city built on a television network. So media and business, business was in my blood. Mm-hmm. So I knew, and I understood swimming to me, swimming was, was kind of like a religion. People believe in it. It's uh, it's culturally cohesive. It's, um, <clears throat> So I was, I was ready to turn pro and I understood it, turned pro, signed with swimwear company, signed with power bar. I called power bar and signed with them. So I, I like, I came out of my junior year back in the early nineties making money. Like I bought a house and paid cash for it in 91. And, um, and I fully expected to train with JT and, um, and JT made, JT was putting controls on me you know he wanted to get paid uh jt wanted certain parameters and it was just an unlivable situation and i felt like that i had been loyal to him and uh going from mercersburg to tennessee Hmm. and that i was going to focus this year on the olympic games and take advantage of the all the opportunities that were there and uh that's the reason why i left i left so where did you go to Who, who coached you for that 92 campaign so no, I so what I did was I went and swam. Uh, first of all, the summer JT didn't coach in the summertime. Oh wow! So every summer I would go train with someone else. I wasn't with my coach who had, you know, really developed me through my world class career. I was going to, and because he did his camps in the summer, he had great camps, he had a great business. No disrespect to to John Trembley for taking care of his family. Yeah. Uh, I'm an adult. I understand that. And he, he needed to focus on a very successful camp that he had with several sites. But I was not coached by John Trimbley in the summer times. Wow. And looking back on it, if, uh, you know, if I were the father of Mel Stewart, Melvin Stewart at the time, if you're old, you call me Melvin, uh, I would not let my son go 
trained for someone who was going to do their job nine months yeah. of the year. Yeah. Not okay with that. If I, if I want to show any emotion in any sort of like, you know, F you, come on, man. Yeah. I'm committed. Where's your commitment? Yeah. So yeah. Uh, I trained with, I trained with our buddy Marsh for a summer. And at that point, and that was the summer before that was the summer of, uh, so the summer of 90, I trained with Marsh. Marsh changed my stroke in three places. I'd never broken an American record. Six weeks after I was with him six weeks, I broke an American record. Six months later, world champs, I broke a world record. And then the next summer I had two goals and a bronze. Wow. Where, where were you training with Marsh at? Where, where, where at specifically? Las Vegas gold. Oh, Las Las Vegas Vegas gold. Gold. So like uh, Las Vegas goal was this team that was supported by a, a, a high stakes poker player whose kids swam. He bankrolled the team, brought in Rowdy Gaines as a coach. Mm-hmm. Rowdy came in there after 1984 and, uh, and then David Marsh was brought in and then David Marsh took over the reins and David, that was the genesis of him really, you know, just come, I'm, I'm his, so, you know, we're gonna put it out there. I'm his first man. I'm his first Olympian. Really? Oh, wow. Yeah. He owes you. Yeah. But my chest is puffed out and I'm, yeah, I, I'm, I'm, I'm showing too much pride. There's a reason. <laughs> um, do, who, who I remember you swimming, obviously, butterfly and, and doing it differently than anybody else in the world at the time. Who, who got you to turn your head and breathe to the side? So when I was a little kid, I, I, was, uh, I swam for a woman called Frankie Bell. Frankie Bell was a, was, is a, is a well-known swimmer. She in, she's in the Hall of Fame, coaching Hall of Fame. She's, uh, you know, if you talk to, you know, some older cats, uh, you, know, you, you know, Randy Reese, Eddie Reese, they really know Frankie. So Frankie was tough. Frankie was great. Frankie was a student of uh, uh, Doc Councilman, who coached Mark Spitz. So when I was getting my training, I was getting the same type of training that she had learned from Councilman. So in the, in the seventies, she was on it and, uh, totally lost track of what I was talking about. <laughs> Just breathe into the side. Where'd it come breathe from? Breathe inside. So I'm a little kid and she was tough, loved her to death. We'd have really great practices and, and like we'd go out and we'd have Krispy Kreme donuts or first time I ate a cheese omelet. I, you know, it was because Frankie took us. We all went out to breakfast and she, I didn't, my parents didn't have enough money. She bought me a cheese omelet. I love this lady. I loved her, loved her. But if you went to the bathroom too many times, you had to do 500 butterfly. So I was a little kid. I, I went to the bathroom a whole lot. No one sent me the memo to just go in the pool. But I would, you know, I'd go to the bathroom and they'd, she'd send somebody after me and then they would, we'd walk up together and he would tell Frankie, yeah, he's just standing down there in a hot shower. I'd be like, I was a little kid just standing under the hot shower. <laughs> Missing practice. So I'd get 500 butterfly. So I started breathing to the side because it was easier. Yeah. And she said, you know what? I like this keeps your, this keeps your head low to the water, get your hips higher in the water. I like it. So she supported me in that style. Wow. Incredible. And then, and then you just, you kept it and, and told all the other coaches, I'm not changing that. Is that what happened? You know, I, I, I thought that Marsh is going to try and change it. Yeah. I would have thought so for sure. I thought that, uh, I thought John Trimbley would try to change it. JT did not. I think, I think Marsh recognized it was too late in my career. Mm. And, uh, but that's why I breached the side. And I, just, to, just so our, our swim nerds out there, Nathan, just want to shout out to you, buddy. Just for our swim nerds out there, I got to say this. Uh, the changes in my stroke with Marsh. My hands entered 
together. If you're not watching my, my, when I, in my recovered on my butterfly, my hands would come together like Mikhail Gross, mm. big stroke, lots of reach. So from touching to my shoulders, I was getting nothing, no forward motion. So Marsh had me enter my hands out just outside my shoulders. It seemed counterintuitive because I was taking two extra strokes per 50. He explained, Mel, here's what inertia is. <laughs> so he explained that I, he wanted to keep my forward energy. Uh, he flattened my stroke a little bit. And uh, I started, instead of turning my head dramatically to the side, I was turning it just about, you know, six to 45 to 50. Mm. You know, just, and I was getting a breath out of my, out of my underarm. Mm. And uh, so he did these slight changes and they were miraculous. So talk to me about Mel, the trainer. What, what made you good in the training pool? What, what, what separated you from everybody else? I, th I think that um, I think it began when I was a kid and, and things were so uh, weird at home. And it was uh, so the problems that we had, like with my, my parents was, was, you know, preceded them in the PTL club and that whole stuff. But it was it was it was it became accentuated during those years. So as a kid, escape into the pool and uh, and liked being numb, like 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 throwing all my frustration in the water. And, uh, and I was, I was sad and I was, uh, very insecure. And the one thing that pumped me up was beating people. Mm. And I love to beat people. I like to just hammer them. And in a swim practice, I could do it over and over and over. And you know, that's, it was a dark wrinkle in my training regimen. I would try to beat people into the ground. I would, I wanted to, I wanted to beat people so badly they'd end up in the corner crying. You know, it's, it was a very intense training. So if we were doing three times 1650s, I wanted to hammer you and lap you. If it was a sprint. It was, you know, it was touching the wall and looking at the corner of my eye and going, it was, just, it was nonstop. So that it, it came from a little bit of a dark place. I've heard that about you in terms of your, your competitive nature. Is that, is that something you've dealt with or is, is do you need competition still to this day? It's, I don't think that you change. I think that, I think that you become aware of what your problems are and, uh, it doesn't, you know, I, I think everybody knows when you're an athlete, it, certain things really serve you. I mean, when you become an adult, it, it doesn't work in marriage. It doesn't work in your friendships. It doesn't work. It doesn't work in business. It's, there's some similarities and there's good stuff. So like, you know, I was gone from swimming for a long time, but when we launched, uh, we had a commercial production company and a design business that service swimming Olympic market, but mostly swimming for, for about five years before swim swam launched. But when I was back in swimming, cause I'd been gone, you know, I had to spend years going to people and saying, Hey, uh, I'm sorry. I realized that I was an asshole. So I spent years. Mm -hmm. I'd every, every time I saw someone new when I was back in the sport, I'd be like, I'd remember something and go, Oh, sorry about that. <laughs> yeah. So it's, yeah, it's a, it's a, I had to let people know that I was aware of what, what I was like and that uh, I was an adult and I was making, making some changes in my life. Well, I do have to be honest with you. I do remember the 200 fly from Barcelona, but it's not the men's, it's the women's mainly. <laughs> That's good. I appreciate why. I, and I, and I expect nothing less from you. I mean, Summer, Summer Sanders just grabbed my attention at the time, you know. But um, 
But how was that win for you? So obviously you have the moment in 88 where you're a, you're a scared kid and then you go four years later and, and now you're the man. What was the experience like in the call room this time? The, the, the run up to 92 was, um, <clears throat> I didn't face gross uh, the post Olympic year or so I didn't, you know, the following year was, you know, I, di- I didn't face him uh, at the Pan Pacific championships and then world championships were in this funny thing in 91 in January in Perth. Mm. You were what? You're about three years old. How old were you then? Youngster. <laughs> you were a child. You were a child. You didn't even, you didn't even understand swimming. I'm a 75 boy. I'm 70. I'm, I've got some age. You got some, get a little bit of age. How many hair mill? <laughs> so the uh so that was the next time i would face gross is january 91 world championships and um so i i had to overcome the fear because he's the one who tripped me out mm. and uh my goal was to win my goal was to break his world record and my goal was to was to beat him badly enough that he would retire yeah. that was literally my goal that was the goal that was written down on my on the back of my medicine cabinet i was going to retire him and uh i hope you still have that medicine cabinet I wish that I still had that piece of paper because I wish I could frame it and show, yeah. hey, here you go. But, but uh, So 91 world champs, uh, he, he led for 350s. I passed him on the last 50, broke his world record, went 155.69. The world record was 156.2. And he retired like 10 minutes later in the press conference. Oh, wow. And, uh, and, it, and I never – you know, I spent two years – waking up in the morning going today is another day that I'll take a step toward defeating Michael Gross, breaking his world record and retiring him. And there was a very specific mantra and goal twice a day in the morning at night before I went to bed, I would think through my race, I'd I'd do a stopwatch and do my, you know, and, and think it through. So he retired. So I went into 92 with a wide open field and, and won comfortably. And uh, so the Olympics was more of a relief 91 worlds in Australia was more of a, my soul. I just, I just dropped a little, my soul dust in this, in this earth. So I really love Australia. Like yeah, huge success there. Feel close to the country. Yeah. Beautiful spot. I do remember those world championships too. Have you just by curiosity, have you had any interaction with gross since then? One, um, I, I need to, so we, I want, I want to feature him in a feature story and just and talk about him because he's, uh, you know, you know, the weird thing was that he was a hero because mm-hmm. what we, 1980, you know, the U S boycotts, the Olympics so we had 84 champions and I, for me, you know, there's a part of your culture and your reality is that it transcends country. Mm-hmm. And, you know, for me, he was the guy, he was the hero. Yeah. And consistent. I loved his consistency. So I was a fan of Gross, and I, I would like to do justice in a feature, you know, probably a magazine feature, some, yeah. you know, any sort of iteration of media, because there's there's uh, there's love in my heart for the man. Yeah, for sure. That's that's nice. You know, I, and you hear that with I, I love MMA, and and you hear that with fighters. I mean, these these fighters want to kill each other, and they get in there and they battle each other. And all of a sudden they have some weird kinship because they've, they've, like you said, he was pushing you, your mantra every day was to, to beat this man. And you said it to yourself over and over and over again. I mean, he made you better ultimately, right? He ultimately made me better. And it's, and he had a longer, more successful career. He was, uh, was far more successful in freestyle than, than I ever, I, I, my freestyle wasn't turned on until the very end. 
and uh, and he was consistent for a longer period of time. Uh, and and I so I I take satisfaction in what I accomplished, but I'm also very aware that uh, you know I, I I got I got I got I got one of the last bites at the apple. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So you you win easily. You have this uh, enormous star factor now. Um, my first memory of you, honestly, is is Baywatch. I mean, I'm sure I'm sure a few people have told you that. No, it's not. Yes, <laughs> I call it BS. Baywatch, man, I remember the Baywatch. What was that all about? What happened there? G- Germany and was it is big in Germany and Australia, right? Huge in Australia. Huge in Australia. Huge. Yeah. Huge. No, it's a. Uh, I just I did um, I did something. So kids, if you're listening to this, old people might appreciate it. Before there was social media in, t- in terms of PR and marketing, I was I was aware of this because of my growing up as a kid, I understood media and how to and how to engage. So I hired one of the top PR firms out of Los Angeles, and they serviced movie stars. And I said, here's you know this is well before the Olympics. I said, here's who I am. Here's my professional shots. Uh, tell me what else to do. And, uh, and I hired them. I paid them $1,700 back in the early 90s a month mm. for going on two years. And I ended up in Rolling Stone. I was in Sports Illustrated three times. And I, and I started doing you know, small appearances on talk shows. And I got Baywatch because Baywatch was, Baywatch was the Olympics. You know? It was, was like swimming. Was show, yeah. it, it dovetailed. Mm. Uh, was that a fun experience? I, you know what? It was, it was cool because it was a, if I was bad, did you really notice? You know, it's like, no one's winning in a, no one's winning an Emmy there. Yeah. It's uh, but it, but so it was a really chill environment. It was cool. And I had, and I, you know, it was fun. I, I liked it. I liked it. I did two episodes, buddy. I didn't do one episode. I did two episodes. The only episodes in the entire history of Baywatch where a ghost was the lead character. <laughs> That's classic. Did you get any phone numbers? Uh, phone number? What do you mean? Was I like young and like single or getting phone yeah, numbers? Yeah, no, exactly. no, that didn't happen. No. It didn't happen. I, no, no, I'm not okay. that cool. All right. I was, here's the thing. Let's, 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 let's rephrase that. I, th- I think I'm that cool. <laughs> not that cool. In re- reality, not that cool. Didn't happen. Okay. So when did you, when did it come to an end? How did it come to an end for you in terms of swimming? So the, um, I, I did, uh, I was back in the pool and back in the water and, and doing some real work probably by 94. And, uh, and that year I decided that I was going to test being a vegan. And, uh, and I, and I remember that it was like, I was like, I got five months into it and like I like started doing times from when I was 15 I had nothing and what I didn't know was that my red blood cell count had just died Mm. I had no iron in my blood and it took me a long time to come back from that so like I went to Goodwill Games and I won Goodwill Games which was a thing at the time like I won Goodwill Games in 86 I won in 90 I won in 94 but like 94 was painful and I had I had no I had no go-go juice so it, but it took me a long time to get back to where I was. By the time I hit uh, December of 95, I think I went a 159, 200 fly, unshaven. So I'm like, okay, I'm back in the mix. This is, I'm, I'm back. And I really didn't, I, I didn't see myself having any competition. 
So I, I roll into 96 Olympic trials that didn't do a full taper. And, uh, so I was aerobically fit, ready to go. And I didn't do that full taper and it cost me that last 50. I was, I just did, I didn't have, I needed more rest Wow. and a uh, dumb decision. And, uh, I remember I got third at trials mm. and I remember touching and going, wow, I'm in the third place club. Wow. And, uh, but I felt an immediate sense of relief because I'm like, you know, I think I'm done with this. And, uh, and I was really okay with it. Like I was, I was very happy. I was like uh, that day I was like, wow, I missed the Olympic team by, by you know, third place. Wow. And I had a terrible 88 Olympics, but I had a great 92 Olympics. And I was really at this weird, like, like near death moment of like feeling immense gratitude for being a swimmer. Mm. Once I, once I set it down, I was like, I'm done. So. Were you able to watch the 96 Olympics? So I did. I retired 48 hours later. I get a phone call from ESPN. Hey, will you be our analyst for the Olympic games? And, um, and I was like, yeah, I'll do that. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so I, 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 you know, I, I lived in a condo in Atlanta and was chauffeured back and forth to the studio in the pool. And I was like, I think this is cool. <laughs> I really like this aspect of swimming. I'll do this. And, uh, and, and it got serious about broadcasting. Like I was like, I'm, I'm going to, I'm going to do broadcasting. Wow. Uh, I, I know you're strapped for time. You, you're such a busy man. You do an incredible job at swim swim. So just tell me about the birth of that. How did, how did that all come about? Um, you know, running this in, in incredible the, organization. The, um, I want, I wanted to be in broadcasting. I worked for ESPN. I'd, I'd done some stuff for NBC, ABC, TBS, Fox Sports, uh, Outdoor Life. Like I'd done, I, I was working. Yeah. I had my own show on ESPN. And uh, at a certain point in time, uh, I knew that Rowdy had gotten the contract with NBC. Mm. And I'm sort of like, you know, if you're going to be in television as an analyst, but you don't have the Olympic Network gig, it's just not a real career. It's just, there's yeah. nothing there. Mm. So I sat that down. I'm like, okay, that's, that's not going to happen. But that was something that I wanted. I wanted it when I was competing. I'm like, I'd like to do this. Mm. And, um, and it wasn't until I saw the internet evolve that I thought, okay, well, you know, can't do this NBC thing. Can't be the Olympic announcer. Maybe we could do something on the web and, and started there and started to grow that. And the, uh, and, for me, swim swam was uh, was a means of, of of filling that passionate want, and it's a fun place to be. So, that's that's a that's a that's a real short version. So, who who was the first conversations with in terms of like let's get let's do this? How did that happen? Well, I, I was working for USA Swimming and Swim Network, and so they had this thing that they were doing, and they they tried to do news, and it really didn't work because it was through it was bureaucratic it just didn't work through the governing body. They, 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 they just, there were too many layers of management, too many people not doing anything. And, uh, our good buddy Garrett McCaffrey was working for flow and yeah. he was the, I mean, Garrett's the best. Garrett was the best swim journalist in swimming. I put, I put him against anybody mm. in terms of just reporting swimming. This guy, yeah. was, this guy had it. He was yeah, so loved it. good. Yeah. So he would never say anything negative about flow. But I got a sneaking suspicion that maybe he was being just run ragged. And it took years before he actually said, yeah, it's too much. 
And I'm like, you know what, man, we should do this. We should do this. So we talked and talked and talked. And then I, I wanted USA Swimming to hire him. I'm like, you guys need to, you know, he left flow. And I'm like, you need to hire him. USA mm. Swimming needed to get him. This guy's a really great asset to the sport of swimming. And uh, they didn't do it. And then he went to Swimming World. And I think that he got run ragged at Swimming World. I think he was doing things. I think that he should have been the general manager of Swimming World. Mm. So none of that happened. And so by the time this opportunity came around, I was like, all right, I'm going to invest some money and start this thing. But so I started talking to Garrett first because I just think Garrett is Garrett's earned his place in the sport. Yeah. And he, and he, and he I mean, he's a coach. He's a great coach. Mm. He, so he under, he, he had a real intimate understanding of swimming. Does he have a stake in swim swim? Yeah. He's a co-founder. Oh, wow. Yeah. Well, you See, know that. Didn't know that. Yes. Everybody that started with us, everyone that started that was, that was there, they, they, they all got ownership. Oh, wow. Look at that. Yeah. So what, what, talk to me. Who, who are the people? It's me. It's Garrett McCaffrey. Um, my wife, yep. uh, Brandon, uh, Braden Keith, yep. and Davis Woolley. Oh, wow. There you go. See? Didn't know that. Good so stuff. Everybody did. And, and, and Davis exited recently, and uh, he's, got, he's moved into another career, so we, we bought him back out. So it's good. It's, it's a tight crew and fun. So what's, what's next? Where does Swim Swam go next? You know, for us, it's, it is, uh, we're, we're seeing what I, this, I, I'm, I'm straight up. I, I, I thought that we had topped out in terms of traffic in 2015. We launched in 12 and the business model was a stupid business model. It's crazy. It's like the business model for me was how big is the audience of swimming? Mm. How many people, because if the audience is there and, and you can mobilize that audience, then it, I think that there's power behind that. There's power and benefit to our, our culture. And my thing was like, I want to find out how large this audience is because I, I have a sneaking suspicion that it's big, especially with people who graduate out of it, identify culturally, but they're no longer swimmers. They're no longer coaches. They're going in their careers. So 50, 2015, I think we've topped out. It goes up every year. The, our audience is grows every year. So what I'm learning is like, doing repeat 200 butterflies and keeping your nose to the grindstone. It's uh, if you do the work and you service and you're not greedy, meaning that you invest back in the business and back in your growth. It's uh, swim media is, is a solid business that pays and it. Um, but I still don't know how big the audience is because it keeps going up. Good. Awesome. Well, that's, that's where we want it to go. So listen, man, I know you're super busy and I really appreciate this. I learned so much today about you and, um, Got, got even more respect for you from where you've come from. So I'm going on vacation and then we're going to get you in the chair. I'm going to do more research about you than you did about me. I'm going to, I'm going to come in and I'm just going to make it look, I'm going to make you look bad. Cause I'm going to be like pulling this crazy detail out. <laughs> Good. Good. I love it. I love it. Anytime, man. Uh, love what you do and big fan of yours. So thanks for doing this. Thanks buddy. I appreciate it. All right. Take care, Mel.